Good morning and welcome to what promises to be an exciting and enlightening conversation covering two cutting-edge technologies, crypto and AI. It's absolutely fantastic to have you all here with us today, both those in person and also those listening in through our podcast. We're diving deep into a project that's really pushing the boundaries of digital rendering and decentralized GPU. The project is Render. We're lucky to have a stellar lineup for today's conversation. Joining us is Jules Obak, the CEO of Render, and Trevor Harris-Jones, the COO. These guys are some of the brains and brawns behind Render, driving it forward every day. They're chatting with David Duong, our head of institutional research, who certainly knows a thing or two about where the industry's headed, and Ben Rodriguez, one of our senior protocol specialists. But before we get things kicked off, let's get everyone up to speed on Jules, Trevor, and Render at a high level. So Jules is a mix of a visionary and a tech guru, always thinking a couple of steps ahead. Initially, it was how he could reduce the price of rendering graphics while increasing the availability of those services for those that need it. And more recently, it's around GPUs, which are incredibly useful and required as we continue to grow in our usage of LLMs. Trevor, as COO, is the one that's making sure the render runs like a well-oiled machine day to day. He's got a knack for figuring out how to scale up the project and make sure it's delivering on its promise to provide decentralized rendering and GPU services. We're going to hear a lot more about render through this conversation, so we won't go into too much detail here. The idea is simple but revolutionary. How do we reduce the cost of GPUs and rendering services while also increasing the availability by plugging into a large global decentralized network? Thank you again for being here, everyone. Let's get this conversation started. David, over to you. I guess my first question really is, has this been a full pivot on your part or really has this been a compliment? Like, how do you see the interplay between what you're still doing with 3D rendering and the move into AI? Yeah. No, it hasn't been a full pivot. I would also point out that since 2017, every render job uh, has an AI component. We do denoising, we do upscaling uh, for those jobs. So there's always been a bit of those GPUs that have been doing AI work. It's just now I look at the... Um, at the explosion of generative AI is driving a lot more tools, demand, and, and, and processes into that part of it. Um, but it's funny because a lot of the things short of LLMs, you know, anything related to generative AI and media, it still requires rendering. Um, a lot of apps that are, are going to be running on the render network that are AI-based, 40% maybe do, you know, sort of neural jobs, neural compute jobs. 60% is still traditional ray tracing or generative, um, you know, stuff that you can run uh, in a normal render job. So I just think it's a spectrum. But obviously, the explosion around the interest in, around uh, generative AI and even the tools that we're creating around that for rendering and for media, um, it's a mixed, you know, it's a mixed component. So I think that the explosion has helped us, but it doesn't mean that rendering is going away. Uh, in fact, with the launch of the Apple Vision Pro, even, you know, rendering jobs uh, that are being done for the MSG Sphere, there's a lot of, of, of interest in sort of next generation media. And I think the Apple Vision Pro launch on Friday will sort of showcase where that's all going. So I think that the future is right on both ends. I would love to hear more about the Apple Vision Pro. And, and if you kind of add to that, what are you seeing in terms of the workloads right now that you're experiencing on the network? Are you experiencing more towards the rendering side or more towards the AI training side? Both. So I, I think that whilst AI inference is also something that I think is going to be really valuable for render, uh, I think that there is a case we made that sure, you know, you have the shortage of H100s, you want to train in, you know, ChatGPT 5 you need, you know, that centralized massive amount of, of H100s. But if you're just doing things like stable diffusion or you're doing things like face replacement or you're doing things like anything visual 
that can run on consumer hardware. That doesn't even need necessarily to have high-end server GPUs. So that's something that we, we see as being um, you know, mappable to the amount of GPUs we have now. And then I think the other thing is Vision Pro, in particular, um, just rendering a one-minute movie that is spatial video, like Apple spatial video format, as we started those jobs and the, you know, the amount of usage on the render network just for a few people that were doing that, um, one of which was us for a, for a partner, it's, it's just a massive explosion. You're going from rendering 4K per frame to, you know, hundreds, something that's about a hundred times that. And that's something that I knew was coming. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, Apple entering this market is huge. So I think if you're going to be doing content for that, and I think everyone wants to, um, that's going to be another, you know, driver of, um, you know, the kind of workloads, the amount of work that's being done per job on the render network. So can you talk about the, the Vision Pro announcement? Uh, what, what are your metrics for success there? Well, I think every, you know, we, we are planning to put out a, uh, an app that, uh, it, you know, it's going to go out day and date with the launch of the product. That's, you know, something that'll be announced a little bit later, but hopefully when this information airs, it'll be already done. And it'll showcase a lot of the work that's being done in the render network. And it'll also be a way for our partners to be able to push content and have it play from day one on the Vision Pro. Uh, I think from that point onwards, um, you know, we're going to see pretty much everybody that's ever used render look at using, you know, the system that we've created for spatial video, spatial content. And when you want to walk into a scene or create something interactive, which has not really been possible to the degree that I think it will be, like a holodeck-like experience on the Vision Pro is something that, you know, we'll have literally a holographic cube as a sample in the app that's launching Friday. Um, but that's an expensive render job. People are going to want that. That's the future that even, you know, Sam Atman talks about, like, oh, I, I want to build a holodeck. I want to see that happen. That's our vision as well. Um, and I think Apple's entry into this market is going to make that happened short of real holodecks being built. Um, so I do see that our, our sort of, you know, example and template of that, you know, releasing in a matter of days will open the door to others being able to then follow that. And there's been a lot of stuff we haven't been able to share prior to the Vision Pro being public. Um, but I think after that announcement and after our app is out and the content that comes with it, you'll see a lot more traction. Sweet. Uh, taking a step back a little bit, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of excitement around like all of this stuff, right? AI is like one of those words that gets people really, really excited, right? But let's take a step back because there are actually a couple bottlenecks to AI, specifically around like data quality, uh, model complexity, but also around hardware limitations and like power for data centers. So I think uh, the question is like, uh, what do, how does Render think about more of the latter, like the, the power for data centers and the limitations um, and how does like Render solve for yeah. Well, I'll let Trevor answer part, the second part of that question. The first part is that we are looking at models that, you know, we can run inference and we can run training on, you know, it's limited by memory for the most part, to be honest. So, we, you know, if you can run a, um, you know, a, a model for, for example, doing face replacement on a 48 gig GPU, it's good. We have a, a huge number of that. We have a million GPUs on the wait list. Um, I think if you're, if you're trying to train, again, a, a giant LLM, you need something more exotic. But, you know, there's just a huge amount of work that we're, that we're seeing that we can run on both the inference and the training side that fits within consumer GPUs. And the way that it works for rendering is you can pick a certain size of, of GPU memory footprint. And then for AI jobs, I mean, I'll let you sort of you know, talk about that as we're adding those services now. Got it. Um, yeah, thanks. So um, a couple of things. One, um, the blockchain uh, we've moved or migrated to Solana is uh, low energy usage um, comparatively. I think it's less than, um, less than the energy to do a tweet to, to use the blockchain. So that, that was sort of one of the, the layers leading into this. Um, when I think beyond that, we're talking um, consumer GPUs. Um, and so um, many of them have access to uh, renewable energy in, in a different way from a, a data center could. Um, so uh, there's an element at least built into that um, in the business model 
around what we do. And then third, I would say um, there's actual work happening here. This is not a, 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 you know, a model that is proving a, a work theorem. It, it's actually um, compute or uh, rendering that's happening that results in, in real output. Um, so, so yes, there's an energy consumption, but it, it is directly related to um, a phys or a, a viewable output or experience that is um, not wasted in, in the process. Let's actually go further into that where you talk about the Solana blockchain. Well, we'll go in more into detail on that in just a sec, but uh, specifically um, more into detail on why a blockchain. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, uh, um, I think at, at the onset, um, it was quite simply uh, we needed an efficient means of, of allocating frames across multiple parties across the world. And, and quite basically, this, you know, the, the usage of a smart contract made um, sense initially. But um, the, the vision was always so much broader than that, and um, this is really where Jules uh, steps in nicely, but I'll, I'll bridge to it, is the vision has been around provenance. And um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about being able to prove you actually created something uh, and to being able to prove on-chain, being able to derive royalties and revenues from that. And we see that as only uh, its infancy right now. Uh, a big part of the um, Solana upgrade or, or move was really predicated on us doing more on-chain uh, as we scale and, and we move in uh, towards more real-time experiences. And, and on the back of that, uh, compressible NFTs, uh, high throughput are, are all critical elements to why we do this. But on the provenance side, I know Jules has been really a, a proponent of this for years, so I don't know if you want to add. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think that provenance is especially important, you know, given how people are freaking out about AI, you know, and I was talking about face replacement and the things that we've been doing for production. We've been doing digital doubles for 15 years, you know, we went to Academy Awards for Benjamin Button, and, you know, it's, it's, and now that we have these very powerful tools and we're using those for partners and studios and actors, you know, you, you want to have um, safeguards in place for that. So if you're doing a job in the render network and you're loading a model of somebody's face to run an, you know, face replacement piece, having something on chain that determines those roles that's not controlled by one centralized entity is important. Also, you know, they're just knowing how something was created. I mean, every single thing rendered on the render network, whether it's a frame for a major motion picture for Paramount or it's something on the MSG sphere, every single 3D model, every asset, every AI component, there is a receipt for that that goes on chain so you can see how it was created. More importantly, when you want to mix those things together, you can actually and, pay, and sell it to somebody, right, to have a paid experience. Let's say you want to launch an app or service on the Vision Pro or, or some other form. The royalties that you can have can be very finely tuned to that. And so that's where the, you know, the blockchain, I think, is, is really interesting. And that's the, and the provenance piece and again, it's almost like you know, when something goes mainstream, when people are, you know, when SAG goes nuts because they're, they're scared about, you know, actors and, and their you know, faces being used without permission, that's where you can point to something and say, you know, technically we're already creating that provenance. Now you can come up with contracts and things that can make that work. And, you know, my business partner helped me start at Otoy 20 years ago, our Emmanuel, obviously a huge part of Hollywood goes through him. He has WME and, and IMG and all these other talent agencies. So we're crafting together those kinds of pieces that allow this to work. And I think that's where the provenance piece comes in. The whole idea of like, why crypto? Um, well, there you go. This is something that I think is, it's a perfect match to um, having something on chain and, you know, and the complexity of what you can build on chain. All right, let's go a little bit further now with Solana, right? Solana, as you, uh, many of you have known, like, you know, is going through a renaissance right now. Um, you started the migration in March, 2023, and it completed in November. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, cool. So that, oh, November, yeah. December. November, December-ish, okay. So I guess maybe the question here is, um, why Solana, right? 
and also uh, like you know what were the the inputs in which that made you decision for Solana at uh, that for example EVM chains or even maybe like a polygon like you know uh, could not just uh, could, just did not help or like you know did not meet your criteria yeah yeah so um i'll i'll try and speak for the community it was a pretty hotly contested uh, proposal uh, probably our, our largest uh, debated one and, and uh, for many important reasons because it, it really set the um the vision and, and the platform that we're going to um, do a, a lot of uh, what have been, um, you know, items we've been wanting to get to for a while and, and just haven't been um, possible. Um, so for us, it came down to uh, cost. Um, we started um, as a, an Ethereum blockchain and, and gas fees absolutely killed us. And so, the, you know, had the move to uh, layer two. Um, and, and even there, um, we're talking multiples of cost reductions. Um, and, and that's really, really important when you think how much we're looking to do on chain here. Um, where it was sitting last year, that really wasn't as evident. We, we do uh, fairly little on chain. But as we now move and, and implement um, the concept of, of compressed NFTs and, and being able to put all of that data, all of the hashes around the render, uh, mean you, you really need something that is exceptionally low cost. Um, so cost very much front and center, throughput being the second. And, and then um, there was a technology element to it. Um, you, you know, Rust is an exciting ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of overlaps there for um, what's done on the rendering side that pulled us, uh, you know, we've seen projects around um, Rust GPU renders um, that will be really exciting when you pair them with some of the, the latest developments, um, you know, with token extensions and more. Uh, it, it really opens up the ability to do stuff that isn't, um, you know, uh, at the onset or, or basic on chain um, and, and drive much more. I know, Jill's more. Yeah. I think pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'll add that, uh, you know, Toby and Raj, founders of Slime, have also been very open to our ideas for how you do provenance, how you can, you know, future what NFTs might be, or, or, you know, all of that. So I think having a, you know, sort of a partner like that, I mean, I consider them partners in the sense of, you know, it's their, you know, their, their blockchain is a huge part of this. I mean, that kind of openness is what attracted me to go to Breakpoint in the first place. And it took me a while to like be fully sold on, on the Solana side of things. But I mean, it's been great. And I think the future that we've bet on with, with doing that uh, with them is paying, playing out pretty well. I think what's interesting about this is that Solana seems to be accruing like a bunch of potential winners in the deep end space in yep. particular. Um, this being one of the, number of projects that have re have migrated onto the Solana ecosystem. But in general, uh, and I, this kind of goes back to the question we were having about the comparisons between more semi-centralized kind of solutions for the same kind of problems versus doing decentralized one. Uh, you know, like it takes a lot to actually kind of bootstrap, you know, the, the crypto validator sets that are required to build these kinds of networks. For example, um, you know, you'd have to have like uh, a lot in terms of coordinating like uh, of the, these things in a decentralized way, which you wouldn't necessarily have if you had a semi-centralized solution like a Bitcoin mining pool or things like that. Um, I, how do you kind of see that? Like, what do you think are generally like the, the set of needs when you come to these deepened projects? All right. Um, definitely, you hit it on the head there in terms of community. Um, you, you know, when we launched our bridge in November, um, it wasn't just us on the project. It was the Solana community. So we, we had help from Helium. Um, and really, they forged a, a large part of the path that, that we're um, happily following here in, in, in terms of the tokenomics model we followed. But, but also, um, a, a lot of the work that they did around moving it on to Solana meant that Solana was the only blockchain that had 
their model up and running and uh, in a way that we could leverage and, and repeat. So um, community was a, a critical part of that. Um, beyond that, um, you know, the wormhole folks were amazing. Um, so it's, it's really helped to have, um, you know, more than just a foundation in this and, and have a whole ecosystem driving you forward and, and driving uh, the project towards launch and success. Could you guys explain a little bit more about the, the burn mint equilibrium? Sure, sure. So th this was also, I'd, I'd say, our, our second most contentious proposal <laughs> right after moving to Solana. Um, and, and essentially, um, you, you know, tokenomics have changed quite a lot since we started. We were an OG 2017 project. Um, and, um, you know, again, pointing to Helium, um, there, the model had really shown a, a lot of success there in, um, in really accruing value in a different way uh, within the various players, uh, allowing it to be allocated across all participants, not just directly between um, artists and node operators. Um, so that, that was the driver for it. What, what the model does is um, essentially separates um, emissions uh, from the actual work being done. Uh, when, when work is done or ordered, it, it's paid in, in fiat, um, and that is used to uh, purchase and burn render. Um, and then on the flip side, the emission schedule is allocated across various participants in a broader way than previously where it was just node operators. So it, we're, we're able to allocate to creators, we're able to allocate to liquidity providers, and, and so have a, a, you know, the decentralized broad group of participants all involved and compensated uh, in a way that makes a lot more sense than, than our previous model. Sweet. Awesome. And I mean, I think, you know, this would be kind of helpful for some extra context just to go into generally what makes a, um, like, you know, an e like deep in ecosystem because it's a kind of like a new or new, but new ish space, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, that people are starting to focus on, right? Because as we know with the crypto cold, uh, crypto cold start problems, right? The coordination of a validator set, right? The economic security of such validator set. But there's also the cold start problem. If you, you know, take those out of the equation, right? There's a cold start problem of the fact that, you know, actually getting sustainable usage uh, for the the for the crypto networks that are built on top of these things right yeah. so more generally can you speak about speak yeah. towards that yeah completely I, I mean what's so um, unique to this project is the the fact that um, octane render is uh, one of the leading GPU rendering software packages it's, it's used by thousands and thousands of artists across the world already these are motion graphics artists who create a lot of the content you see when you're on the internet or, or on TV today. And, and so uh, we started from an ecosystem of those artists who are using the software already, who, who were um, coming across the same problem that Jules and team were, that it, it takes far too long to render these on your own local device. Um, and, and so the, the need was an acute one felt by a group of artists who already trusted and used um, this software and, and this ecosystem. And, and so, um, you know, Having the Otoy uh, team found this and, and bring in that user base was critical because it, it's brought a, a million consumer GPUs um, to the table in a way that you just wouldn't have found otherwise. You would have had to go, go out there on a, a BD effort and sign up you know, loads and loads of data centers individually. Um, and so uh, you know, it, it's unique in, in that aspect um, and definitely got us part past that initial cold start problem in some ways. But um, there are other avenues in, in terms of incenting um, nodes for availability as opposed to doing jobs that, that are part of, of how we operate. And, and there are other levers when you move into these burn mint type models that make a whole lot of sense on um, how you can help get past the, the not having any work on the network 
um, you know, we started with a, a wait list and really restricted the number of node operators on the network uh, with a view towards solving that, not having nobody earn any money, but rather have a, a small group get it up and running, prove it out, and then scale. And, and it's been really exciting to see us open up that wait list now to compute clients and to draw on the scale that I think is unique um, and very different from any other uh, deep in project that's out there. Uh, Jules. Yeah, and I think what we have like six, six or so, um, you know, AI compute partners that are using using render, and that's, I mean, that covers really the general purpose use case of where you'd want to see anybody build anything they want with the power of the network. I look at, you know, my role just coming from O2A contributing to render um, to bring in some of the forward-looking technology where it's already productized really well. And I will say that, you know, one of the things, I mean, we did build the equivalent of the render network in 2014 or 15 on AWS. And Eric Schmidt joined our advisory board when he saw what we were doing and said, I have to make sure Google's GPUs are used. And so Google, AWS, or their, their partners. And what broke the model that we had in, in centralized, you know, in the centralized version of our render network uh, precursor called Oric was that whenever there was a VR job or an MSG job, right, because they had they didn't have this fear, but they still had, you know, really high renders, like one customer would take all of AWS's GPUs for a single VR type render, 10K by 4K. What's interesting is we're, you know, now back to this point where Apple Vision Pro is coming out. Yes, MSG now has just one 16K by 16K sphere in Vegas. But the Vision Pro, like spatial video, the format that Apple announced that they're showing the press, right? Just rendering to that format is goes from a $1,300 per minute render to 13,000. It's 10 times the, you know, the, you know, the quality. And then, you know, to multiply that by everybody is going to want to create those things. We're going to go back to that same problem. This time, though, as we're starting to do Vision Pro renders, we have way more compute power than AWS ever did. And I see us saturating that. And then, of course, people are going to make things that use AI to make the, you know, to make those visuals part of the, um, you know, to make them better. I mean, as a tool that goes into any sort of content creation piece, big or small, I was showing you guys some of that work that we're doing. So I do think it's sort of an interesting full circle to go back to seeing, you know, the jobs now, you know, going, they're going to be looking at 10x the, uh, you know, the resolution of a four. Render, and that was the problem we had. We just had a few customers that would break AWS or Google when they have, I don't know, 10,000 GPUs um, back in 2015. And I, I think that we're, we're ready this time. The render network's ready to you know, take that workload. And that's why this year I'll be super exciting for that. Actually, you know, like, like, can we just unpack that a little bit? Because, you know, we talked about this right before uh, we started this thing. And we were discussing how, like, when you have AWS, for example, you have servers that are physically right next to each other, yeah. which you know, really kind of add to the value of, of what you're getting in a centralized kind of versus in a decentralized, I don't know where some of these GPUs are sitting. And if I'm an AI uh, algorithm, for example, that's reliant on knowing like what are the nodes in that network, I mean, people coming on and off, for example, like this could be a problem for some of those, uh, for some of those demands. Like how, how do you kind of address that? I'll, I'll, I'll take the um, part of that. So I think, first of all, I think, you know, allocating nodes for rendering is harder than AI. I mean, in the sense of, in, right, there's inference for AI and then there's training. On the inference side, you load the model locally and you run the inference job, right? That's something that's fairly straightforward. Um, and you can allocate nodes in a decentralized way to pull in those data sets. When you're doing a render job, some of those, like, Jobs are 160 gig scene files that have to be downloaded, generating almost as much data going out if it's for you know, the Vision Pro or Apple Spatial Video. So data in and out is a big deal. And we can take 10 GPUs in a single node and render it 10 times faster. AI doesn't, you know, can use some of that. But the reason why central, centralized nodes matter for training is that you want to allocate, you know, 16 A100s or H100s uh, with a you know, ton of memory. But that's really on the training side. On the inference side, it's so much of the work that you're seeing being done 
you know, to generate those outputs can be done in a single GPU, can be allocated to that, and it works well in a decentralized way. So we're focused on those pieces. And I would say that, you know, the problems that we solve to get decentralized rendering to work are probably harder than getting some of the decentralized AI workloads that we're doing. Um, with the exception, of course, if you're, if you're training, you know, ChatGPT and you, you know, that's, that's a unique use case, but there's not, you know, that's not going to be the future of the massive amount of decentralized AI work that we see us doing on, um, on the Render Network. And I'll, Trevor, yeah. if you have anything you want to add on that. Yeah. So, um, some of our compute providers who've integrated with us have these issues. Um, you know, they're in jurisdictions where you, you've got to um, know where the work is being performed. So this is something we, we've built into the network, at least on their side, automatically already. Uh, you can select a, a group of US nodes or a, a group of yeah, certain um, specific specs in, in terms of only 4090s or whatever else. Um, you know, it's, it's mostly in terms of knowing where you're processing it is a solved issue. For, for me, the, the bigger challenge on the AI side is actually more around the security. And um, when I look at what um, the Otoy team have, have done on the rendering side, it's truly amazing how um, we've got to the point where um, real movies are, are being run on the network because of the security being solved, right? Um, on the AI side, it's a different security problem. Uh, it's being handled differently. And, and I think that's where you're gonna see the most innovation in 24 is, you know, as ZK and homomorphic encryption become real things, potentially there are more secure ways for these to be run, um, you know, um, and, and not lose access to your critical data. Um, but there's still a lot to be said. I, I feel like we're really at the start there and um, um, less so the location and more security all the way for me. And I will point out that, you know, in 2021, November of 2021 was our first confirmed, you know, triple, you know, that movie for Paramount, right, that was done in the render network. And the security for that used to be when they did Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was done in our, on our system in the public cloud. It was, um, it was you know, security for MPA movies was really tight. And the render network has end-to-end -end encryption. So the data to, for this Paramount film was sent to some random user's machine. It's not, you know, it's on, on the network and it was sent back and it never touched any part of memory on the, on the node that wasn't encrypted. And that technology is something we want to bring to AI jobs as well. I mean, there are AI workloads that are still running through that render network loop. So it is possible to do saying, something equivalent to homomorphic encryption all the way to the GPU and back. Uh, and that's, that's something that was unique, I think, to the way we did render. I mean, the security of rendering a Hollywood film on decentralized machines is higher than a lot of render farms that are out there when we are doing audits on them. So that's something that's interesting. And on top of that, you do have layers of security. If you really want to you know, render this on a centralized node, you know, Google, Azure, you know, Amazon, they're partners on the render network, so you can send it there. But it's not necessary. And the technology to sort of encrypt your data um, is a huge part of it. But we've done that work for years. And I think that's you know, essential. I mean, people don't want to have their data scraped or stolen or their weights, you know, taken. So all of that is something that we've, I mean, we've solved that already for major Hollywood productions, but it's still data in the end, right? So if we solve it for one data type, we can do it for others. That's, that's fascinating because, you know, I, I feel like from a lot of large corporations, they're not even willing to have like encrypted data, like flow through to like a uh, you know, an AWS server or something like that. So yeah. hearing about this, this is, this is fascinating. But, you know, I kind of derail us from the conversation we're having about community and, and other things. And one of the announcements you made recently was the Render Network Foundation. Um, and, of course, this uh, represents some um, important aspects for kind of building up the render community and the ecosystem itself. Can you just talk about the major players there and, like, what you're hoping to achieve with this? Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, the foundation was a key step. It, it assumed stewardship of the networks from Otoy. And, and really, timing uh, was great. It, it made a lot of sense because, um, you, know, you know, we'd committed to bringing uh, other third-party renderers to the render network. 
and uh, are now at that stage where that is a reality. There, there are jobs happening that aren't just uh, Otoy's renderer, but um, other um, prominent GPU renderers. And, and really only at its start, there'll be many more to come. Um, and so, you know, it, it was really a, a big step from um, really being reliant on one ecosystem to becoming that decentralized open ecosystem. Um, at, at the same time, the community voted for the expansion to bring on the general purpose compute jobs. And, and that also made a lot more sense to um, be decentralized when you have two voices there in the ecosystem, not just the uh, artist workflows, but now more general purpose customers. Um, we wanted to ensure that there, there's a way for everybody to have an equal voice and, and say in that. And um, you know, the foundation as a vehicle for the community really made a, a massive amount of sense. Um, the foundation team has, has um, started small, but it has, has grown this last year. It's about five people now in total. Um, and their focus has, has really to date been on that, that upgrade from Ethereum to Solana. Um, and I, I would say for the, you know, the next year, we're kind of interested as the community pushes us in the direction of, of roadmap. Uh, we expect it to be uh, continuing on a lot of the stuff we've started on the Solana side and, and really completing a lot of the, the visionary items. But we'll see. I mean, that, that's really up to the community. What it's done is, is really given um, a broader voice, um, a um, say in the direction of the project. And it's been really exciting to see that, um, you know, bringing on the first three approved um, compute clients, another one last week in the, the voting process and a couple more in the pipeline. And, and we don't see this stopping. Uh, we see it becoming a, a real means of the project running and growing. Awesome. I mean, like, yeah, that then, like, you know, thinking about like potentially competition with like larger cloud companies, like they're, like they're able to strike deals with like NVIDIA for the latest hardware, for example, like H100s have like a wait list that's completely filled. How do you see like the, the foundation, um, you know, or the render network foundation and just in broader the community, yeah. like, you know, be able to like, you know, uh, like continue with deals with like, well, like that yeah, yeah. and compete. I mean, I'll answer. And then this is also more Jules's realm. So for, for me, um, the, the biggest part of this is the consumer play versus the enterprise play that uh, the render network was built on consumer cards at a very different price point from an enterprise card when you're in a data center. And so you have a very different set of economics in terms of cost of capital. Uh, these are mostly idle uh, where you, you know the money has been spent, they use it for local rendering work anyway. Um, so you're not talking a massive capex that's gone into um, generating this data center that needs to be recovered. So uh, what that translates into is a very different price point. You know, uh, I think it's about a tenth of, of what you would pay directly in, in a data center. So that, that sort of, for me, the primary, primary competitive driver is, is where we're starting from that you know, cold start being the motion graphics artist with those, those different cards. Um, but I mean, yeah, Jules has a lot more on this subject. So I'll, I mean, I'll jump. In, in yeah. specifically to the relationship with NVIDIA, I mean, I, I want to point out that before we did the render, decentralized render network, um, the person that announced our, our centralized version of render was Jensen. I was on stage with him at GTC uh -huh. in 2013. And, you know, he's like, you know, Otoy's building the Octane Render Cloud work, right? Um, and he loves what we do. And we have a great relationship with NVIDIA. I'm, just, I'm giving an hour-long talk in a couple of months, my 15th, you know, in a row after 15 years of doing this. So we, we, we talk to NVIDIA every single week, you know, and they're very aware of what Render is doing. And uh, it's, it's something where I think, you know, we're looking at it from two, two points. Yes, you want to have nodes that have H100s in them for just in case you want to do that kind of high-end training. But it's also really interesting to sort of share with NVIDIA, like, how do you do more work on less, you know, GPU compute power? They're working on it. Apple's working on it. 
you know, that's why it's, I think, you know, the, you know, the direction is towards, I think, what we're already, the infrastructure we already have on render. And also, it's really important for us to know where NVIDIA is going with their hardware. We've been, you know, just like with other partners, you know, we know the roadmap to some degree being close partners for years. And, um, and NVIDIA is really, I mean, they, they really do, you know, love what we're doing and they want to help us. So I think that having them, you know, as a partner and a collaborator for so long uh, has definitely been great for render. And I think that it's, you know, there's so much that's going to be playing out over this coming year. Um, I'm excited to sort of, you know, share more about how that, you know, how that'll happen in, uh, in the coming months. I also want to point out though, on the types of jobs, you know, this year with, with the Vision Pro launching in 2024, you've got spatial video, which is a format Apple's announced their spatial volumes where you can walk through those things. Those are 10x the spatial videos, so 100 times the, you know, the compute power. 2025, we've invested in a company called Lightfield Lab. You will have those Apple Vision Pro glasses experience on your wall without glasses with these Lightfield displays. That's also a huge part of the future. As mentioned before, you know, Sam Mountain was talking about the holodeck and the equivalent of that being how he sees the future of computing. So I think over the next two years, there's going to be a lot of interesting you know, workloads that, that push us towards that sort of holo, you know, holodeck experience. And NVIDIA is a huge proponent of that vision as well. So I just wanted to note that that's an important part of our two-year vision you know, roadmap, really. Sweet. Uh, so, you know, much like with all of these, uh, David and I can go on forever here, but we'd like to turn it over to y'all, okay, um, for some questions, all right? But before we do that, let's give a round of applause. This was awesome. And I'm going to come out from my seat, so whoever has some questions, I'll go to them and you talk into the mic for the questions, okay? Let's go. All right, all the way to the back. <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, thanks Thanks for the time. Matthew Siegel at, at VanEck. Um, Two questions. The first is around the, the Solana piece. We obviously agree with you about a lot of the good parts. One maybe drawback that we've noticed is that just like a, a, a lack of transparency or less transparency around token unlocks and burn. And is that a function of like the tools not being built yet? Would you agree with that characterization? That's the first question. And then the second question is I can hear a theme uh, today is around kind of more B2B applications. Like if, if Apple Vision Pro is a big deal, there's going to be app developers building on it. Um, do they want service level agreements? Can you guys satisfy that? Like, how do you think about decentralized network and service level agreements? Thank you. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming on your, your question, it's not Solana unlocks. It's, it's more render unlocks. Well, I'm wondering well, if yeah. like with the move to the SPL token, maybe yeah. there's a, some barrier yeah. that is out of your control. Got it. So, so I mean, yeah, we like we didn't move to the ecosystem for the Solana price. It, it doesn't really matter to us on on that side. It, it really is what it is. We we moved to it for the tech, right? And um, as it comes to the render network performance, um, you, you know, m making the switch over here to Solana is is a large project. We're um, mostly through it. We we've got to the point of um, you know at least being able to do the, the burn mint model live on chain, but it's taken a couple of weeks in terms of completion to automate everything within that. And so we're in this interim month or two while we're doing that, um, where we're gonna exit with all of it being automated and on chain. Um, and at that point, um, our dashboards will become live and, and public because it makes more sense. Where, where it sits now, we're, we're just in that final, call it month of implementation. Um, but we, we would love, um, to get public data out there as, as fast as we can. We know it's a, a number one request from the community and it, it's nothing uh, from our side besides just engineering time to get the model on chain 
and then to aggregate those in a way that makes sense. I've seen some early stage drafts and, and it's close and, and moving in that direction. So that, that will yeah, completely follow and, and is quite exciting because for us, it, it's now um, all automated uh, in a way that uh, wasn't done in the past. So it, it's really come from that new integration and, and the ability to, to drive it. So um, that, that's our answer, the first part of it. Um, the, the second part in terms of SLAs and, and customers we work with, th this is actually where um, the line for compute um, and the compute client uh, makes so much sense. Um, you know, when I look at the random network, we, we're not having consumers directly come to us for AI jobs. We're working through compute clients. And um, the existing three compute clients all have different go-to-markets. Um, they're really interesting when you look at them. Uh, the first one, Ionet, is really centered around the Ray ecosystem. Um, next one, Beam had uh, greater orchestration. Uh, and third one, FedML, had their own proprietary orchestration that was somewhat similar to what Ray does. And we've got more coming down the pipeline. What I see for those providers is some are going after enterprises and some are therefore into their business models, uh, putting in SLAs and enterprise level agreements. And those are fantastic. I mean, they still leverage the, the same compute that the other compute providers do. And, and that, you know, um, on the rendering side, the artist workflow does. Um, if there are more um, artist, um, you, you know, uh, SLAs required, um, we have to see. We haven't really had any coming in in that direction. We, we do have um, at least one party that uses our APIs directly uh, on the rendering side. And, and potentially, we hope that will grow with some of these other larger players that, that are looking for the compute side. Um, it's something we'll have to navigate um, on that front. It, it just hasn't become a reality yet for, for that aspect. Okay, I think yeah. that covers it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Right, sweet. More questions? Hey, uh, Eric here from Pantera. I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you conceptualize how much power is on the network? I mean, I think I've heard you guys say a couple of times it's more than Amazon has or other cloud providers, but how do you, like, measure that? How many nodes are there? How much compute power? How do you think of that? Well, I mean, I'll start by yeah. saying, you know, we, so when we launched the Render Network, it was, it was, it's straightforward. For anything relating to render jobs, we have something called Octane Bench, which is basically almost an industry standard. NVIDIA and Apple both, as we put out versions of Octane and Octane Bench, like, you know, the Octane Bench scores, the value of your GPU, regardless of the generation, how long does it take to render a frame? That's anything related to visual generation is measured by that. So the nodes that have 10 GPUs have 10 times the Octane Bench of the same with one. And that's one measure of, of work being done. And that's driven a lot of the, um, you know, how we price jobs. And the Octane Bench per minute on Amazon was how we came up with the initial, you know, pre-BME version of the token is that it costs a dollar to do this much Octane Bench. How much does it cost to do it on, you know, the, on the decentralized, you know, network? And everyone sort of got you know, paid out in that. I think with AI jobs, there's similar metrics that we're building. In some ways, it's almost easier because you kind of, you know, the outputs are, are, are similar. Um, but that's one way of measuring the work that's being done, regardless of what the number of GPUs are. But the wait list for GPUs was, I mean, it was about a million at, at one point. And it's, it's something that we have, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of GPUs that are suitable for the kinds of workloads that we're doing that are in the consumer space. And, you know, one thing that, that Jensen did do is that you can't put those GPUs in a data center um, as part of the EULA. That's why Amazon and Azure were, were locked in tens of thousands of these, of these you know, GPUs before the H100s, right? Uh, things for server-side rendering and all that. Um, we don't have those limitations. The one thing in the NVIDIA EULA that you can do with those GPUs in a data center is do cryptocurrency mining. So there is, there is a... Um, 
you know, there's a lot of, of, of you know, lean compute power out there. It's our job to bring those workloads in. Um, and Trevor, if you want to add yeah. anything to that, I'll yeah, I think we've um, we've announced previously that there's generally more than a, a million octane bench on the the network at, at any point running now, um, active. So that's sort of a, a yardstick of, of if you understand the relative compute metric of of what octane bench is. Um, it, you know, uh, that that's a good yardstick, and and the waitlist really is multiples of, of power we could pull in for that. You know, we, we've been pulling in as needed for the compute clients and, and aren't anywhere near concerned yet that we can't scale to meet any any needs. Just a quick follow-up, because yeah. I'm not really familiar with measurements, but like how much Octane Bench would Amazon have, let's say? Oh, we, within one week of signups, we had more Octane Bench than all of Amazon, Google, and Azure combined in 2017. That's how quickly... You know, the wait list of, of GPU power hmm. came in. It was just, it just took a week, and we had more than the three of them combined. That's in one of our blog posts. Yeah, it's a bit of a complex question. So you've got to understand um, not all GPUs are the same. So the, I think the, the metrics out there are there like one and a half billion GPUs in the world today. Um, but um, yeah, not a, a big subset of those are um, ones that could do rendering. Um, you know, we estimate you know in the two hundred to three hundred million range. A subset of that can do AI computing, and um, it, you, you know you have specialized elements of the um, the hardware that are made for rendering or are made for AI, and so it's kind of hard to compare a, a rendering rig to an AI rig for rendering because an H100 doesn't do rendering uh, particularly well versus a 3090 that's custom built for it or a 1490, but vice versa, the H100 is absolutely amazing at large language model training, particularly in combinations. And, and so when I'm giving you an octane bench measure and then comparing it to uh, the data centers, the, the data centers as a whole have, have really um, driven towards the second use case that's emerged AI training. And, and so, um, you know, that's where the battle seems to be here around these H100s where you've got to wait six months to a year to get them. Um, and, you know, in, in our view, it's, it's only a, a very small subset of the AI work and not, not even, um, you know, drop in the, the rendering side. So um, it's hard to compare there directly. Suffice to say, um, we have an abundance. Yeah. yeah. So just, just for, you know, what those numbers mean. So like, you know, a, a, a 4090 is like 1300 octane bench and A100, right, which is the, uh, you know, one of the first server GPUs that was 400 octane bench. I think the H100 is maybe 750. So, uh, you know, if you're talking about rendering, H100 kind of is not great. But if you're talking about AI workloads for training LMs, you know, it's much higher. An iPhone, I think, is about 40 octane bench. You can run full render jobs on it. Um, and in fact, I mean, when you look at, at, at the reason why you need an H100, you need that memory, right? You need NVLink, you need all those things. But, you know, because NVIDIA does not put out a consumer GPU with more than 48 gigs of video memory. Apple does so. Apple, my laptop over there in that back is 128 gigs of GPU memory, and that's just on a you know a laptop, right? So I think that as we look forward to expanding the render network, I think Apple hardware is going to be huge for decentralized workloads, especially if you do need stuff that requires more memory. Even on the inference side, you know, doing some sort of you know 4K face replacement could go up to 64 gigs. Apple GPUs have that, you know, even mid-range ones. Um, so I think that that's where you, you know the amount of, of memory that's in the workloads that we could do increases when we add Apple into the mix, and we will. I mean, that's something. We're for sure planning to do, and a lot of you know, customers that are going to the render network start on the GPUs that are local on their you know iPad or iPhone or Mac. Um, it's in the Vision Pro. So, awesome. Last question: Can you explain the thought process around the waitlist? Um, <clears throat> why not let the 
I guess the market decide the the economics around contributing GPU power to the network versus, I guess, restricting who's on the network and who's not on the network. And do, is there a plan to get rid of the waitlist at some point? So the, a lot of this is how you scale a, a two sided marketplace. Um, and you know where we were starting, um, you know, the cold start problem was one of of not a whole lot of artists day one using the network. Right, and so it, it made obvious sense to not bring on too many uh, and have a position where nobody makes money on the network. Um, we, we wanted to essentially foster enough out there to be able to um, prove the product and prove the product market fit. And a, a big part of that on the rendering side has, has really been proving that out, uh, scaling up. Um, you, you know, the team did an amazing job last year um, adding a second means of uploading files to the render network. Um, it, it used to be through um, a proprietary or an open source format called Orbex that um, yeah, we pioneered that it essentially converted all of the information. Um, and uh, that was fantastic because it meant you could work with many different um, content platforms Every, in, the, yeah, in, yeah. in the creation. How, however, it, it made it a, a complex process. And um, you know what? What we did was we um, last year focused on some of the larger players in the motion graphics space and um, allowed users to natively upload a, a Cinema 4D file to the network. And and what a lot of these are are, are really just that streamlining of, of product market fit and, and of the user experience to the point of of really being able to scale um, on the artist front. Um, today, only a small segment of um, Otoy's base use the render network, let alone of the new third-party renderers. So the, the idea was get it ready, get it primed. Now, as you start scaling up on the uh, rendering side as well as on the open compute side, that's the point to then open up the taps and, and match the two so that folks who are bringing their, their work uh, or their nodes to the network are making sufficient money to stay and not just leave you. If we'd done it and they were earning you know, one job a month, I think you would have found many you know, moving on to other postures and, and not getting the, the system to the point of being stable and then ready to scale. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're at an order of magnitude in terms of the, you know, if a single, single artist jobs are going to go up by 10x just to do Vision Pro stuff um, this year. Um, but as Trevor's saying, I mean, even our own paying customers using Octane, I mean, we haven't pushed them to the render network because, as much as we could. I mean, there's probably just a single digit percentage for our own subscribers, but just the whole artist ecosystem are on there because we wanted to get the artist workflow right. Artists you know, friction is really important. So getting those pieces in place and also supporting every other type of customer besides our own is taken up to this point. So we have two inflection points. Probably we're, we're going to see 10x the amount of artists or 100x even if we open that up uh, as we open that up this year. And then soon the jobs that they're doing are probably going to you know, skew heavily towards, you know, 10 times the amount of work per frame. Um, and that's before we include the AI components in there. Yeah, we'd like to get to that point. Yeah, and that, and that wait list then will go to zero. You know, that's that's what we're, it's been a long process and having the patients to do this right is really important. Awesome. So uh, thank you once again to Jules and Trevor. Give it a round of, one last round of applause. That was awesome. And thank you all for coming. This is awesome.